You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. people booked and it looks like we've almost filled, filled it up despite the weather. That's brilliant. Um, so welcome to Stanton Library and the Writers at Stanton program held in conjunction with Constant Reader Bookshop at Crow's Nest. I'm Ian Hoskins, North City Council's historian, and our writer today is Hugh White, who is here to talk about his latest quarterly essay, Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America. Well, it's NADOC week, so more appropriate than ever to remind ourselves that we're gathered on Cameragle land that was part of the Australian East Coast, taken for King George without treaty or compensation, first by James Cook in 1770 and then by Arthur Phillip in 1788, when half the continent was declared British territory. More specifically, Cameragle country entered the Sydney property market in 1794, around when 30 acres around Kirribilli was granted to Samuel Lightfoot. And given we're here to discuss foreign policy, it's interesting to consider the legality of that claim. As Henry Reynolds argued more than 30 years ago, the myth of terra nullius, which rationalised British colonisation, contradicted both contemporary international and British law and developed a momentum and necessity of its own, despite immediate and ongoing evidence of Aboriginal attachment to place. The theory of an uninhabited continent was just too convenient to surrender, Reynolds wrote. The law retreated farther from the real world and farther into injustice as the 19th century progressed. And the High Court of Australia came to a similar conclusion in 1992. In the early heady post-Cold War days, in which the Mabo decision was made, it seemed that such flagrant acts of colonialism were an unfortunate part of history, albeit with present-day ramifications. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is evidence to the contrary. The rules-based international order based on UN articles upholding sovereignty and human rights, articles that would definitely have made British claims to Australia untenable had they existed in the 18th century, is being undermined by a resurgence of national myths and brute power. China's claim to Taiwan will likely be the next test of that order. That is a point of some relevance for today's talk. Well, recently I watched Top Gun 2. It was a fascinating counter to the first movie, made in the triumphalist days of Reagan's presidency. The gender politics have improved, which is a relief. Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer have aged, which is no surprise. More interesting for me was the portrayal of American military power. The film opens with Top Gun Tom flying a super-duper update of the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird called Dark Star, capable of flying at 10 times the speed of sound. American ingenuity is thereby reassuringly established, albeit with a fictitious aircraft. But the mission at the centre of the story is not flown by that imaginary wonder plane or the very real F-35 Lightning stealth fighters in the US arsenal, but F-18 Super Hornets, old technology compared to the Russian Su-57s they confront. Even more significant, spoiler alert, is the appearance of a mothballed F-14 Tomcat for the climactic battle between Top Gun Tom and the Su-57s. Back in Reagan's world, the swing-wing Tomcat was the epitome of US swagger and supremacy. It was very fast and very cool. In 2022, it is a museum piece, and yet in the hands of an American ace, it prevails. The lesson? 
Well, Americans are better than their foe despite the planes they fly. They have the right stuff, the true grit. They are exceptional. The movie ends with Tom flying off in a Lockheed P-51 Mustang. He is lovingly restored. That, of course, was the best long-range air superiority fighter of, the, of World War II, the last major conflict in which America prevailed and the war which established it as a, super, a superpower. The message, America and Americans are better and they fight on the side of right. Always was the case, always will be. And yet I detected a note of unease with that playful nostalgia, the concession that the US is now militarily challenged as never before, hence the emphasis on the right stuff rather than the best aircraft. US decline is central to the thesis of Hugh White's latest essay. In East Asia and the Western Pacific, Australia's region, America faces a competitor in China that it can't, can't defeat outright. Accordingly, the imperative of global and Pacific hegemony that drives its foreign policy and its sense of self is doomed to fail, particularly if it is challenged over Taiwan. If the US defends the island, it will be defeated. If it backs down, its position as hegemon will be usurped. Australia consequently, consequently faces a reality in which its great and powerful friend of 71 years, ANZUS was signed in 1951, is no longer all-powerful. As Hughes suggests, our unwillingness to accept that and to determine another course for Australia is leading us down a path to catastrophic conflict in a sleepwalk. Hugh White, AO, is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs, part of the ANU. He was the principal author of Australia's Defence White Paper in 2000. The, rise, the issue of the rise of China and its relevance to Australia has been a major concern for him over the past decade and a half, during which time Hugh's written The China Choice, How to Defend Australia, and the quarterly essays Power Shift and Without America. I think you've spoken about both of those last ones here at the Stanton. And the most recent in that series, which is the subject of today's talk, Sleepwalk to War. Please join with me in turning your phones to mute and welcoming Hugh White. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for that a very engaging introduction. I'm a little half tempted to just sort of stand back and say, OK, let him, let him do the way. He's very good at it. But no, seriously, really, thank you very much. Thanks, Kate and the Stanton Library team for inviting me back to this very enjoyable uh, Forum. I was actually having dinner with Paul Kelly last night, and he said, "What are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm doing the Stanton Library." He said, oh, "Stanton Library? That is just the best, the best venue going." So, if you get it from Paul Kelly, then it must be true. So, something big is obviously happening. Um, last week, um, our new prime minister found himself in Madrid, um, standing alongside the leaders of NATO as well as the leaders of some Asia Pacific countries. Um, expressing deep solidarity with the NATO powers in meeting what's clearly seen as a major global challenge. And that's, that's new. I mean, that's just, this is different. And particularly to hear NATO describing China not actually as a threat the way it was sometimes reported, but, but as a challenge to, amongst other things, NATO's security... Uh, this, is, this is a pretty significant step for NATO and Australia's engagement with that, along with other Asia-Pacific countries, I think does tell us that something very big is going on. 
And we didn't, in a sense, need Madrid to tell us that. I mean, for the last couple of years, uh, we've had uh, political leaders on both of the previous government and the new government talking about Australia's strategic situation today being worse than at any time since the 1930s. And we know what they mean by that. The 1930s, of course, prelude to an absolutely catastrophic collapse in global order and the worst war in history. So what, I'm, what I've been trying to do in the essay, um, uh, and what I want to just quickly sketch here this afternoon, is to try and understand, well, what is it that's going on? What's behind this? And what, can we, what should we make of it? So I think what's going on at one level is pretty clear. That is, we are seeing a very substantial challenge to the post-Cold War global order. Uh, and by global order, I, I don't mean anything very elaborate. I just mean the sort of basic understandings about the way in which countries get on with one another. And it's a very, it's, a, it's an, a slightly amorphous concept, but it's a very powerful concept. Because in the end, the national affairs, the way states get on with one another, is governed or shaped or, or, or managed by a series of understandings, some of them explicit, some of them implicit. And, and including understandings about who's got the power and who's got the influence. And the world we've lived in for the last 30 years uh, was, or at least we thought it was, characterised by a very unusual structure of power and influence, a unipolar order, one, one pole, one leader, um, uh, the United States. A and that that order was based on a series of shared ideas, shared values, uh, um, concepts of the way in which society should work, broadly speaking, liberal democracy and market economics, uh, but also understandings about the way in which international relations worked and so on. Uh, and it promised a, a peaceful world, or at least a world in which whatever else might happen with smaller actors, rogue states or non-state actors or terrorists, we wouldn't have the kind of rivalry and contestation between great powers that had been so decisive in the 20th century, World War I, World War II, the Cold War. It really did offer the prospect for a world that was a, a lot easier to live in, a lot more peaceful, a lot more stable, a better place. And this vision of a unipolar order was supported by an awful lot of important countries, and including, one might say, a lot of our mates the United States, of course, but also the United Kingdom, NATO as a, as, as a whole, in fact, Japan. Um, in fact, the whole idea that we capture with that very vague and I think rather troublesome concept of the West, people like us. And that order, what's happening today, is that that order is being challenged and it's not being challenged just by rogue states like North Korea or Iran or terrorists like Al-Qaeda or whoever. It's being challenged by two of the most powerful countries in the world, China and Russia. Um, and uh, and those, those challenges have come to a head, obviously, very spectacularly in, in Ukraine. I'm not going to talk much about Ukraine in what I say here, but it's not because I don't think it's very interesting, and I do actually talk about it a bit in the essay, but I'm going to focus on Asia because that's where we are, but the, the Ukraine story is a very big part of it. Um, both, both in Ukraine by Russia and in, in East Asia by China. 
And the question is, well, what's the substance of that challenge? What is it that Russia and China want as an alternative to the unipolar US-led order, which the West has supported? Well, there are two kinds of answers to that. The first is what they want to do is to replace the US-led unipolar order with a unipolar order of their own led by them. And there's a presumption there that, the, that you, you, the, uh, uh, China and Russia would form some sort of coherent single geostrategic entity which could together lead what Scott Morrison called an arc of autocracy. Um, and the alternative model is that they aim not to achieve a global unipolar order based on their values, autocracy rather than our values, democracy and market economics, but a multipolar order. That is that they want to dismantle the unipolarity under US leadership that emerged at the end of the, of the Cold War and replace it with a multipolar order in which there are several different major powers around the world, um, each of which dominate their own region um, and have a kind of equal say in what, 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 what goes at the, at the global level. Um, now, neither of those models of global order are nearly as attractive, at least in my mind, than, as, as nearly as attractive as the US-led order. Um, uh, not that I love everything about the United States. Um, it's very easy to have a catalogue of things about the United States that infuriate you, but, but I, I, I do think that a US-led order is likely to be better than any of the alternatives available. But nonetheless, that's not the end of the conversation. It's not just what we want. It's what can we plausibly expect to achieve. And that's really what my essay is about. What do we do about the Russian and Chinese challenge to, to the pre-existing post-Cold War order? Well, our instinct, and when I say our, I mean Australia's instinct, but also NATO's instinct and America's instinct and so on, is to defend what we've got. We think of it as our order, and as people always do, nations as well as individuals, we want to hang on to what we've got. And we do think that this post-Cold War order is something we deserve, we the West. We won the First World War, we won the Second World War, we won the Cold War. We built this order, we like it, and we think it's ours. And that's entirely understandable. So it inclines us to simply push back against what China and Russia are trying to do, trying to preserve the unipolar order, refuse to contemplate compromise with either of those two alternatives that I mentioned. And it's worth making the point that no one is keener on that than Australia. Australia is right at the forefront rhetorically and in some ways in, some ways in action um, in trying to pursue the policy that in response to this challenge we just push back. We try and contain that challenge and preserve the old status quo intact. And there's a reason for that, which goes a little bit beyond the sort of usual observation that Australia always just goes along with what America thinks. More is going on than that. Because the challenge that China poses in East Asia is not just a challenge to the US-led post-Cold War global order, which is only 30 years old. It's a challenge to Western primacy in East Asia, which has been a core condition of Australia's place in the world since European settlement, since 1788. Uh, ever since uh, Arthur Phillip 
came ashore just, am I pointing in the right direction? Yes, just over there. No, oops, okay, <laughs> thank you. You get the idea, I'm from Canberra, I just. <laughs> but ever since it came ashore, Asia has been dominated either by Britain or America. Uh, and we take that for granted. We think it's natural, that's sort of inevitable. But in fact, it's a, it's a very strange historical circumstance that Britain remained the strongest country in the world, the world's dominant maritime power and the primary power in East Asia and the Western Pacific from 1788 right and through until, well, pick a date, but shall we say the fall of Singapore in February 1942. And literally, with the precision of an Olympic relay team, as the British dropped the baton, the Americans picked it up. So we have never really thought about making our way in Asia without having a dominant Anglo-Saxon power uh, making Asia safe for us. And that's very much framed the way we think about our place in the world and the way we think about our place in Asia. And that is what China challenges. It's not just challenging, as I say, the post-Cold War global order. It's challenging the vision of Asian order upon which, which we have always regarded as both necessary and sufficient for our security and prosperity in this part of the world. So we have a, we have a very big stake in this and a different kind of stake, a deeper stake than, uh, than, than others around the world. So if we're all determined to push back against it, the question is, well, how do we do that? Uh, there are two kinds of elements of that. The first is a kind of presumption that, that the, so to speak, what we believe to be, the universal appeal of the values upon which the post-Cold War order is based, plus the economic weight and technological weight and the, um, and the diplomatic weight of the West, will simply ensure that neither Russia nor China can, can achieve the kind of um, support and influence that they would require to achieve either of those two objectives I talked about, either the unipolar, um, uh, authoritarian unipolar order or, or a multipolar order. And then there's the second part, which is the harder part. That is that, well, if that doesn't work, we have enough military power, Tom Cruise in his, in his Tomcat, um, or even an F-35, I'll come back to that, um, we can, we can if, 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 the, if the economic and diplomatic and values that we represent aren't strong enough to defeat this challenge, then our armed force will. And the big question, of course, is, well, is that going to work? Is it enough? And uh, here's the bad news. I'm sure it won't. Whatever else you might think, I, I think our capacity to preserve the US-led order uh, much as I'd like us to, on the basis of either of those sets of policy instruments, is, is, is very low, non-existent really. And the basic reason for that is terribly simple, and that is that although we've all been talking about the rise of China for a long time, uh, we still, I think, don't really get it. Um, we still don't get how big it is. It is the biggest and the fastest shift in the distribution of wealth and power in human history. It is the most strategically significant shift in distribution of wealth and power since the Industrial Revolution. In fact, since around about 1788, not a coincidence. That's why Britain had the power to occupy and develop and defend and populate this continent on the other side of the world. 
and uh, and it, just to put two sets of numbers on it, and I'm going to use the Australian government's own numbers. So just a few couple of months ago, in a rather obscure document uh, that put out by the Department of Foreign Affairs, were some Treasury estimates that today. China's economy is 19% of global GDP and America's is 16%. But here's the really scary bit. By 2035, which in this business is the day after tomorrow, this is a Treasury estimate, China's economy will be 24% of global GDP and America's will be 14%. And at one level, that sort of tells you everything. Because wealth is the foundation of national power. Why was Britain the most powerful country in the world all the way through the 19th century? Because it had the biggest economy. Why is America the world's dominant power all the way through the 20th century? Because it had the, has it had the world's biggest economy. Why is China going to be very hard to beat in the decades to come? Because it's got such a big economy. And we keep on thinking that, that, that there's a sort of inherent fragility in the Chinese economy, that somehow they can't be getting this stuff right. Because this is, after all, the stuff that the West does right. Well, let's not make that mistake. We have consistently underestimated China. And we've made a lot of mistakes in doing so. So I think we need to, we need to first of all, recognise that that means that the economic and diplomatic stuff, those policy instruments are not going to work, and they're not working. Around Asia, for all the talk that we, some, that we often hear, the countries of Asia are quietly reluctantly, but quietly adapting themselves to the reality of China's power. If you want a little perfect sort of exemplar of that, it's when Scott Morrison found himself standing next to Prime Minister Li Xianlong of Singapore on his way to the Cornwall G7, just this time last year, a year ago. And Scott Morrison was asked a question about China and he gave the sort of usual answer, not, not very obliging to Beijing. And Li Xianlong standing right next to him delivered him a lecture and said, well, that's not the way we see it. We are worried about China's rise, but we are going to have to learn to live with China's power and we can't pretend that it can be pushed aside. So we have to work hard to work out how we're going to live with this country. And that, that view would be echoed all around Southeast Asia and in South Korea and in some ways, in some ways, in Japan and India as well. So I don't think that's going to work. And that leaves the military contest. Now, this is a very big subject, and I'm going to go over it very quickly. But right at the heart of the confidence in the West, including in Australia, that we can preserve that old US-led post-Cold War order is the proposition that we, and by which we mean the United States primarily, is strong enough militarily, it really is the Tom Cruise story, is strong enough militarily to deter China from any serious challenge to US primacy. And that what's more American military might can deter China from pursuing its challenge. It will persuade China that it must back off in order to avoid a war with America. And that if that doesn't work, and if China's not deterred, then it's worth our while going to war with China to crush it. And if we do, we'll win. Now, I think there's a lot of big mistakes in that, uh, in that set of arguments. Uh, America, at, the, at the end of the Cold War, people got used to thinking that America was literally unchallengeable militarily um, ar around the world. 
that, that the United States could do anything with its armed force it wanted to. Now you'd think we'd have learnt that that might not necessarily be true because there have after all been one or two regrettable failures, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan coming most obviously to mind, but, but we don't. We're still persuaded that the United States can do whatever it likes militarily. And, uh, and I, I, I just want to very briefly explain why I think that's wrong, particularly wrong in this context. The, the way in which a military confrontation between the US and China would, would manifest itself would, would almost certainly be over something like Taiwan, not necessarily about Taiwan. But Taiwan is by far and away the most obvious and, uh, and I think most likely, and so I'll focus on that example. Now a war between the US and China and Taiwan will start by China m making a military move against Taiwan in order to force what they would call in Beijing reunification. And China would have two reasons for doing that. The first is that they actually want Taiwan back, as they would say. And that's a very, very deep, visceral desire within China for all sorts of quite deep historical as well as political reasons. But the second reason is that they would deeply hope that the US would decide not to fight, that it would back off, and that by backing off, it would, its weakness would be revealed. The credibility of its military posture and broader diplomatic posture in Asia would be undermined. Its alliances in Asia would collapse. And, uh, and US leadership in East Asia would, would be over and, and China would emerge as the leading power in East Asia, which is its sort of primary objective. And that depends on, that, that little scenario, depends on the Chinese correctly assessing that the United States wouldn't fight back. Now, you can have an interesting debate about the different kinds of evidence that the Chinese could draw on to, to, to reach that conclusion, but there are two, two things I think in particular that, that weigh pretty heavily. The, the first is that it's now pretty widely accepted, and notwithstanding the confidence that I just uh, talked about, it's now pretty generally accepted that America can't win a war with China over Taiwan. It's, uh, it's primarily a maritime war, America has been overwhelmingly the dominant air and maritime power around the world for a very long time indeed. But China has worked very hard and spent a lot of money building armed forces, air and maritime forces, specifically designed to beat the United States in a war over Taiwan. And uh, speaking as an ex-force planner myself, they've done a very good job. Uh, they, have, they have built a force which is very well suited to the task of defeating America in that kind of war. Or rather, not defeating. It's very hard to defeat America with a capital D. It's a very big and powerful country. What they can do is prevent the Americans from winning. And so what you'd see at the end of what would be, of course, the biggest air and maritime war the world has seen since 1945, by miles, and in some ways the biggest war the world has seen since 1945, um, what you'd see at the end of, I think, actually about a fortnight it would take, would be a stalemate, in which both sides had lost an awful lot of people and an awful lot of equipment and would feel terribly bruised, but neither side had, had achieved anything that looked like victory and neither side would have any particular way forward when they asked themselves, well, what are we going to do next to break this stalemate? I don't think either side would have any options that would appear to offer them anything except nuclear weapons. And one of the things that happened at the end of the Cold War is that we were so relieved that the, the nuclear confrontation between the superpowers was, was over that we forgot about nuclear weapons. But 
the, the, the confrontation passed, but the weapons didn't. There were fewer of them than there were, but there's still more than enough to cause an, an unthinkable catastrophe. And I think, for reasons I spell out in the essay, I think the chances of a, of a US-China conflict going nuclear are quite high because the chances of either side achieving a result with their conventional forces is low. And, and that once it begins, the chance of escalating to a full-scale nuclear exchange is equally high. Now, what that means is that the Chinese leaders, when they ask themselves, will America fight back and really defend Taiwan the way they say they will, or will they back out when time comes? That, that all of that, the fact that they can't win a conventional war and they would end up facing a nuclear war, which would include nuclear attacks on American cities, I think makes, that, uh, makes it more likely that the guys in Beijing would decide the American wouldn't fight. They look, for example, at the withdrawal from Afghanistan. They look at the reluctance of America to start what, George, what, what Joe Biden keeps calling World War III over Ukraine. And they think, well, if he doesn't want to fight World War III over Ukraine, why would he want to fight World War III over Taiwan? So the chances of the Chinese calculating that the Americans will back off is actually quite high. And I think they're probably right. I think America probably would back off which means that the b bad consequences that I sketched before, that the, that the people in Zhongnanhai, the people in Beijing hope will happen, would occur, and China, America's leadership in East Asia would be undermined. The alternative, of course, is they wouldn't back off, in which case we're going to face the worst war in history. And I don't want to over-dramatise, but this is a real possibility. If this war happens, no-one will look back and say that came out of a clear blue sky. It, the, the pieces are all being set up for that. Though I don't think it's inevitable, and I don't actually think it's that likely, because I think America will probably back off to avoid it. But if I'm wrong, then, uh, then we're in for real trouble. And of course it's important to say that Australia's position on that is clear. At least under the previous government, present government's a little bit uncertain, or at least has so far been less explicit. But under the previous government, it was absolutely explicit. Peter Dutton, at least, and with the clear, explicit backing of his Prime Minister, believed that it would be worth, it would be right for us to go to war against China to try and preserve the US-led order in East Asia and to preserve the global post-Cold War um, uh, order. And I think that's wrong, because I don't think it's a war we can win, and I think it's a war that's likely to turn into a nuclear catastrophe. And if that's true, then the chance of America being able to win that contest with China and East Asia, and I might say, I'll just say this one sentence, and similar arguments apply in Europe, if that's true, then we can't preserve that US-led order in Asia, and we can't preserve it globally. And so we're going to have to step back and ask some deeper questions. We not just hang on to what we've got because we like it, but ask ourselves a more serious set of questions about uh, the way in which we think the order should go. Now, as we think about that, we've got to go back to that what the point I mentioned close to the beginning, which is the question about what kind of order would replace the US-led unipolar post-Cold War order if the Russians and the Chinese succeed? Would it be a unipolar order run by them? 
in which autocracy would become the sort of global norm of politics and which would pose a significant, really significant challenge to the political systems and ideologies that countries like Australia uh, are organised around? Or would it be a multipolar order in which those guys stand up, so to speak, as great powers, but that the other powers, countries like America, remain as great powers as well? And so we find ourselves not in a unipolar order, either of the democratic or the autocratic style, but in a multipolar order with lots of big power players with lots of different ideologies all jostling with one another. Well, obviously, I think, if it's the first of those, if, they, if, if it is the, the, the autocratic unipolar order, then it's the arguments for doing whatever it takes to stop it happening are very strong. But I think it's overwhelmingly likely that what we'd be heading to is a multipolar order. Because although I think China and, for that matter, Russia are very strong countries in different ways, I don't think they're strong enough to establish their own global hegemony. I mean, we know the United States hasn't turned out to be strong enough to establish or at least sustain its own global hegemony. I don't think those guys can do it either. And particularly because I don't think they can cooperate. It's easy for them to cooperate when what they're trying to do is to dismantle the order they don't like. But uh, if you spend a bit of time, as I did a couple of years ago in Moscow, talking to them about how they feel about dealing with China, which is predominant in East Asia, what you get is a very, very strong, very deep sort of Russian sense that whatever else happens, Russia will remain a great power. It's never going to fall under anybody's shadow, not NATO's, not China's, not America's. And although Russia is a very odd country with lots of very deep weaknesses, and we can see some of them on display, it also remains a country of very deep strengths, uh, you know, written in letters of gold across the portal of every strategic policy institute in the world should be, don't underestimate Russia. Uh, plenty of people have made that mistake before. So I don't think we're going to face a, you know, Chinese-Russian condominium to dominate the world, to rule the world. I think we're, going to, we're moving towards a multipolar global order in which America remains a very strong player in its own backyard in the Western Hemisphere, in which China becomes the dominant player in East Asia and the Western Pacific, in which India, which we haven't mentioned yet, but India, which will be the third, which is the third and will become, not, in the not very distant future, the second strongest country in the world, and then by mid-century probably the strongest as it overtakes China, it will be the dominant power, a great power in its own right, in South Asia and, and the Indian Ocean. The Europeans, in whatever strange trajectory Europe manages for itself, will remain a very significant player at their end of the Eurasian landmass. Uh, and Indonesia too, because Indonesia will have the fourth biggest economy in the world well before the middle of the decade, middle of the century. Indonesia may be a great power in its own right. All of that tells us a picture of a future which is much more complicated than the idea of moving from the West's vision of, of a unipolar order to the Russian and Chinese vision. And that suggests that this model of the future, though it's going to be very uncomfortable and very different, and especially for Australia, very different, because it would mean that we would be living in an Asia not dominated by Britain or America, but an Asia which is actually divided up between two Asian great powers, or maybe three, depending on what Indonesia does, with China up there, and India up there, 
Actually, the good news for Australia is we're between them. There's one thing that's better than being stuck squarely in a great power sphere of influence is sitting on the boundary between the spheres of influence of two great powers because it gives you lots of opportunity to play them off against one another. Now, this is a very different model of foreign policy from the one we're used to because we have a very deep foreign policy culture of loyalty and alignment. We, we, we pick a friend and stick with them. And I might say that's worked pretty well for us because we've had some pretty powerful friends. But in this future, we're going to have to be a lot more supple. It's, I call it the Mongolian, the Mongolian model of diplomacy. You know, Mongolia sits between China and Russia and their whole life is spent looking like this both ways, being neither too friendly nor too adversarial with either of them. That, I think, will be our future. And now, will it be as nice as the unipolar order would have been? No. But is it better than starting a war we can't win? Oh, yes. And I do think that as a country we can make that work. But we're not going to make it work unless we wake up to the, to the dynamics at work and unless we can reimagine our place in Asia and our relations with these countries and, of course, that means also reimagining our relationship with the United States. This is, I think, the biggest foreign policy challenge Australia has ever faced because of the biggest shift in our, in our international settings since European settlement. And uh, at the moment, I think you'd have to be pessimistic about the capacity of our political leaders to manage it. The interesting thing is that, that there is very, very close bipartisanship between the US and China. Oh, sorry, between, that's a slip of the tongue, but between the coalition and Labor on this. They, and I think that's been emphasised since Labor took power. And I think, you know, bipartisanship is often good, but it's not good when it's bipartisanship in support of a bad policy. Uh, I think there's a real question about, about how effectively our political leaders can come to understand the nature of the challenge we face step back from the automatic assumption that the only thing we can possibly do is to support the United States in a contest with China, start to imagine a new Asia, which is dominated by Asians and not dominated by outsiders from the West, white guys, not to put too fine a point on it, and start thinking, well, how do we make our way in this, in this very different world? I think we can do it, but we can't do it if we don't recognise that's what we have to do. Thank you very much. Oh, yes, yes, the role of the UN in the past and in the future. The really interesting question, because when I talked about us moving into a multipolar global order and how that's a bit scary and not as nice as what we thought we might have moved into, of course, what I'm describing is precisely what the UN was set up to do. You know, at the end of the Second World War, 
nobody imagined that America was going to end up being the globally dominant power. What they imagined was that there were actually going to be five great powers. They didn't get all the five right, I might say, you know, with all due respect to my many friends in London and Paris. Um, but the idea that what we were, we were going to live in a world in which a group of great powers of widely differing character, but including America and the Soviet Union, as it then was, we're going to have to find a way to sit down together in a fancy room on the East River and sort out the world's problems amongst themselves with a bit of help from us, thanks to, thanks to Doc Ebbett, with a bit of help from us, but, um, but they were going to be basically in charge. And there was a degree of confidence that that could be made to work. That, that, what, that was the model. And it fell apart within a few years because three of the other great powers fell away. There were two left. And we moved not into a multipolar global order but to a bipolar global order and a very unusual one. The fact that, if I'm allowed to say this, a number of us grew up and, and remember the Cold War uh, and therefore it has a kind of familiarity shouldn't stop us from recognising how strange it was. Very, a very unusual sort of moment in history. Um, and in a sense, what we're seeing now is that we're moving back to the, the world, I think, which looks a lot more like what the founders of the UN in San Francisco back in April 1945 really had in mind. The question is, can we make it work? Um, now, what, I, what won't happen, I don't think, is it will collapse into bipolarity because there are too many big players. I mean, for, you know, the fact that India is going to be there as the second or third biggest uh, and eventually the, first, the, the biggest economy in the world. Uh, the fact that America is not disappearing. None of this says America disappears because, you know, America is still an enormously strong country. It's just that China and India are doing that. But it doesn't, you know, it's still a very significant player. So the question is, can, can those whatever that group of great powers looks like, and my hunch is that it looks like China, India, Russia, the United States and Europe in some form or other, and maybe some others, maybe Indonesia, maybe we end up with an African great power around Nigeria. I mean, that's, that's how my, my imagination fails me at that point. But I, uh, but I think the question is, how do they work together? Well, there are examples in history of a group of great powers managing to find ways of dealing with one another, even if they're very different in the character of their regimes, um, in order to keep the peace. That whatever else, you know, they disagree about all sorts of things, they bitch and moan about one another, but they all know that one thing they don't want to do is to go to war with another. And the best example of that is the concert of Europe that kept the peace in Europe, and because Europe dominated the world, kept the peace around the world, pretty well from 1815, Congress of Vienna, through to August 1914, when and <laughs> all turned to custard. But 100, well, 99 years was a pretty good run. And there were certain principles of international conduct, not written down, but sort of clearly understood by all the key players, which allowed that multipolar order to function pretty well. And I, the, the, the architects of, of the UN had that model in mind, and they, you know, they, they, they envisaged that that kind of approach could, could work. And in my optimistic moments, and I'm not by nature a terribly optimistic person, but my, my optimistic moments, I think, well, you know, this, this, this could work, but it does require everyone to be very respectful and tolerant of other people's systems. And that, you know, that, that sounds easy 
until you remember that that means being respectful and tolerant of things that regimes do that you really abhor. You know, what the Chinese do in Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Taiwan, we're going to have to bite our lips. That's, that's what it means. And so it's, it's, actually, it's, it's quite hard. You have to make sacrifices to keep the peace between great powers. And a lot of people will say, well, those, are those sacrifices worth it? Well, I'd say, well, just really exercise your imagination about what happens if you don't keep the peace between great powers. They've got nuclear weapons. And they could use them. You know, I, I mean, a very big part of my approach to all of this is that I, I, I take the risk of nuclear war very seriously because I think the, the fact that we didn't have a nuclear exchange during the Cold War was due to very specific characteristics of that confrontation. And the fact that we haven't had a, a, a use of nuclear weapons since the end of the Cold War has been due to very specific characteristics of that era. And I, the way I see the era we're, we're moving into, I would say that we are already into, is very different. And the, and the factors that made the use of nuclear weapons mercifully not happen are not nearly as strong now. And so I think we're going to have to work much harder to keep that particular genie in its bottle. Sorry, long answer, but it was a good question. One and two. Yes, sorry, I just need you to repeat the questions for me. Oh, yes, the yes. Microphone's not working, so, yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> oh, too late. Should Australia persist with acquiring nuclear-powered submarines? Well, let, let, me, let me just... Um, let me, let, let me just rephrase the question to start with. We are so far from acquiring nuclear-powered submarines that it, hardly, that it hardly matters. I mean, on the most optimistic interpretation, which is on the basis that everything goes right, and let me tell you as a veteran of the process to buy the Collins submarines, which in retrospect looks like great success, but I tell you at the time was very painful, nothing ever goes right in a submarine project. They're unbelievably complicated, delicate mechanisms. And, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit like an iPhone. You know, you sort of look and say, you've got no idea what's going on in there, but it's very bloody complicated. So submarines are really hard to get right. If everything goes right, we won't get the first submarine until well into the 2040s. And, and of course, one submarine is not a capability. Six, we know six submarines is a capability. That's why we've got six columns. There's a quite good you know, mathematical reasons why you need six submarines to have a, a sustainable capability. And we won't have six submarines on the most op optimistic interpretation until well into the 2050s and probably realistically the 2060s. I mean, give me that. You know, it's, it's all just... It's, it's, not, it's not serious policy. Um, so... Uh, but should we... Well, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an important question. How could governments possibly sign up to something like that? I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, I really think it is just barking mad. So, but let me give you a slightly different way of answering the question. Um, I, 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 I'm a very strong believer in the value of submarines in Australia's particular strategic circumstances. It's got a lot to do with us being an island and being surrounded by islands. So I'm a big fan of submarines. I'm much less a fan of big surface ships. I would take lots of money out of the money out of the investments we're making in big destroyers 
and send it, spend it all on submarines. In the book that Ian mentioned, How to Defend Australia, which I published in 2019, I argued this out at some length and argued for a fleet of 24 or 36 submarines. There's nothing, actually nothing magic about multiples of 12, but that happened to be the way the arithmetic turned out. Um, but I don't believe nuclear submarines, even if we could get them much faster, are a sensible investment for Australia because although they have big advantages, particularly speed underwater, they have very big disadvantages, particularly being very, very expensive and being very difficult to run, particularly for a Navy. I hope there are not too many retired naval officers here, particularly for a Navy that has trouble running a diesel engine. Um, <laughs> don't, don't laugh. Um, uh, and, you know, and remember, these are nuclear reactors. I, I mean, you know, they're, they're nothing... It's, it, they're smaller... But what we're talking about is nuclear reactors. Now, you know, nuclear reactors are very safe, except when they're not. And one of the things that worries me is that sometime between now and whenever the first nuclear boat arrives, if it ever does, uh, there'll be another Three Mile Island or Chernobyl or Fukushima. And, and suddenly people will turn around and say, oh, hang on, there are reactors in these things? Um, I, I don't think the Australian public's really woken up to what's involved. So that, that, that adds a whole layer of complexity and difficulty. And the thing is that, you know, because I'm, you know, in, remember, defence policy is basically a business of engineering, a matter of getting physical results in the physical world. And although it might be nice to have a submarine that can, you know, churn along at 30 knots underwater, um, there's some very good reasons why I wouldn't want to do that, um, but that's what it can do. The fact is I'd much rather have a submarine at sea, serviceable, delivered, and cheaply enough that we can have enough of them to achieve the strategic effect we need to achieve. So I, I personally think, and I'm in a bit of a minority on this, but I personally think that, that the uh, proposal by nuclear-powered submarines is a really big mistake. Um, and I also don't think it'll happen. Uh, what instead we'll do, and you can hear Richard Miles already sort of gesturing in this, way, this direction, is it will end up uh, replacing the Collins with a submarine that looks surprisingly like the Collins. The, the, the problem is, and which is a good way to do it. I mean, you know, the, the one thing about the Collins, uh, tr trust me, although I'm, a bit, I'm not impartial on this issue because I was pretty closely involved in it, but, but the Collins is a pretty good boat and it has one overwhelming advantage. We know it really well. And that means we can reduce the risks of... Of, uh, of replacing it. One of the many reasons I thought the French deal was very dumb was that we'd invested a huge amount of time and energy and so on getting to know the Collins and we're just going to walk away from that, a brand new submarine that we didn't understand at all. So um, I, I, I think we'll end up, um, if not abandoning formally, then pushing the acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines so far into the future that, you know, becomes my great-grandchildren's problem. Yes, central to all of this, uh, and what you've been saying is, you've got an idea of the near future, and Taiwan, and China, and what their immediate uh, ambitions are. Are you able to briefly elaborate on what you think is the future of unipolar, bipolar, multipolar, South Pacific and Australia in particular, yeah. Uh, beyond Taiwan, yeah. where do we fit in? What are they? Yeah, yeah. No, look, really interesting question. 
So the question is, uh, let me paraphrase your question, how does this actually unfold? So let's, let's just scenarioise a bit. And scenarioising is dangerous, but it's also quite a helpful thing to do because it just you know, helps to sharpen your perceptions a bit. So let's imagine that sometime two or three or four years from now, uh, Xi Jinping gets up one morning and says, now's the time. And so he does uh, mount a military campaign against Taiwan. Personally, I don't think he'd actually invade. I think he'd blockade. And the Americans would then be faced with a choice, are we going to commit the US Navy and Air Force to breaking that blockade by sinking the ships that are enforcing the blockade, shooting down the aircraft? And my, my hunch is, for the reasons I spelled out, my hunch is that, that um, Xi Jinping wouldn't do that unless he was reasonably confident the Americans wouldn't fight. And my hunch is that, he's prob that, he, that, that the Americans probably won't fight. Uh, the, the, going back to something I mentioned in my remarks, the, the arguments that George, uh, Joe Biden has about not wanting to fight World War III over Ukraine applies equally strongly over Taiwan. In that case, I think the US, the credibility of the US position in Asia is very seriously undermined. And in particular, because this is the really critical point for America, it, it's the, the credibility of its relationship with Japan is seriously undermined. You can just about say that, that, that the America's um, strategic alliance with Japan is the core pillar of its strategic posture in East Asia. And so if Japan decides they can't trust America anymore and decides to go their own way, then America's position in East Asia collapses very quickly. Now, I, th I, think that is, I think that is a very likely consequence of an American failure to defend Taiwan. Why? Because, you know, if, I mean, we, we, we're worried about China, but not half as worried as the Japanese are uh, for all the reasons of geography and history that we know. The, the Japanese, though, also understand they have to live with China. They're under no illusions about that. They've got a couple of thousand years of history to educate them on that issue. And although they're very fond of the alliance with the United States, why wouldn't they be, apart from anything else, that saved them several percent of GDP a year for the last 70 years? Uh, I think that Japan will always put a very high premium on being really sure that it can look after itself, and they're not sure that the United States will do it for them. Then uh, they would take the steps necessary to do it for themselves. And they can do that. Their economy is big enough, their technological base is strong enough for them to develop the forces they would need to defend themselves independently from China. Of course, they'd need nuclear weapons, but they have a shed full of plutonium the size of this library, um, and they've got all the skills required to turn those into nuclear weapons. So, and I think for Japan, you know, the threshold for moving to become a nuclear power is much lower than most people understand. And so uh, I think what would happen, again, just pursuing the scenario, is that the Japanese confidence in America would collapse the Japanese would go their own way, the South Koreans would certainly go their own way, and that would leave a question for Australia. If America is no longer a significant strategic player in Northeast Asia, do we continue to trust America for our security? And I should, sorry, I should say, and China has ended up as, the, as, as America's faded, China ends up as the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, and we end up as the sole outpost of American support. So can we continue to trust America in that situation the way we have in the past? I don't think we can because, you know, once you... you we're ill-served by our political leaders on these issues 
because when they, when they find themselves standing at the microphone alongside the Secretary of State and the US Secretary of Defence, what they talk about is our you know, shared values and 100 years of mateship and all that sort of stuff. But that's not what makes alliances work. History is crystal clear on this. What makes alliances work is a clear convergence of strategic objectives. Now, our strategic objectives have converged with Americas for the last 70-something uh, years, 71 years since uh, ANZUS was signed in 1951, um, or eight years since 1940, 1941, um, because we have wanted America to remain the dominant power in East Asia, and America has wanted to remain the dominant power in East Asia, and an alliance with Australia helps America achieve that objective. That is, that's really what ANZUS has been all about. But if America no longer sees itself as the dominant power in East Asia, it doesn't need an alliance with Australia. Anymore, it needs an alliance with Madagascar. And the fact that we have, you know, all the shared history, culture, traditions and so on doesn't in the end make much difference anymore, to be blunt, than it made much difference in 1941 that we had shared history, culture, values and traditions with Britain. Um, but it didn't work out for them. So I don't think we could, we could rely on an America to... to do what we expect them to do if they're no longer if they're no longer playing a significant role in Northeast Asia, and th therefore we then have to begin the process of, of well of learning how to live without the U.S. alliance. Now um, that's really what my How to Defend Australia book was about. It was about if we can't depend on the United States, can we defend ourselves independently? And most people, most of the time in Australia's history, have said that's that's just impossible. The continent's too big. We're too few, all of that. And I, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to that point of view, but I just thought, well, we'd better test that, hadn't we? It's a pretty important question. It, so, so, so what I did was to sit out and say, well, let's just start with a blank sheet of paper and say, if, you, if we had to defend ourselves, how could we go about it? What could we do? What would it cost? And, you know, the answer I came up with is, yes, we could, probably. There are a few uncertainties about access to technology and so on, but in broad terms, it costs just 3.5% of GDP compared to 2% now. But we could do it. We'd have to be very, very careful, not doing dumb things like buying nuclear-powered submarines. We'd have to be very careful to work out exactly what we needed to be able to do in terms of strategic objectives, then work out exactly what kind of operations most cost-effectively deliver those objectives, and then work out exactly what kind of capabilities most cost-effectively deliver those um, operational outcomes, and then work out how much they're going to cost. But, you know, in the scope of a, whatever it was, 180-page book, I sort of, you know, it's all a bit pedantic and sort of bureaucratic. I plead guilty to being an ex-bureaucrat. You know, you just set it out step by step. I think, I think it could work. I wouldn't mind giving it a try. I might say... Nobody on either side of politics has shown the least interest in it. But, um, but that's because they continue to cling to the idea that America will always be there for us. That's taken us, I'm sorry, that's taken us right up to the hour. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, 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 great <laughs> answers. Thank you. Please join us there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please ask him a question while he... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks all very much for coming. I really appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.